For the final episode of the J-Curves Latin American Power Women in Tech series, I'm thrilled to welcome Laura Constantini, co-founder and managing partner at Astella, Sao Paulo-based early-stage venture capital firm with over $100 million assets under management and over 50 companies invested, including the likes of Omi and Artistation. Laura is an industry OG, a pioneer among female investing in venture capital in Latin America. She's a board member of six Astella's portfolio companies and a co-host at Astella Around the World show, where she interviews global VCs, LPs, and thought leaders. Laura, so great to have you as my guest. Welcome to the J-Curve. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being with me today. I'd love to start with some history and context. What prompted you to give up on a pretty successful career in finance and make a move into venture capital way ahead of the pack? What made you so bullish about the region back then in 2008? Well, actually, the idea that we had at that time or two open a VC firm was the experience where we were having with a group of founders that would come to us for help. And uh, people knew that we understood a little bit of technology because of our background and that we were M&A slash consultants. So they would come to ask for help to understand how they could grow, what are the possibilities or the alternatives that they had. What impressed us was the idea that we could actually help those founders uh, to create solutions and to grow faster and solve uh, pain points for society and for our country, most uh, prominent challenges. So this was what caught us attention and put us to think, why not opening a VC firm in Brazil? Were you exposed to venture capital models elsewhere in the world, seeing how influential they are in other parts of the globe, or it was something that you came up with as a team? At that time, Endeavor was new in Brazil, and we started to understand what was going on in other countries. We knew a little bit of the entire ecosystem of Silicon Valley and how technology was changing the landscape there. And this was our biggest reference and benchmark. And then afterwards, we started to get acquainted with other ecosystems in, in other parts of the world. Was there any specific aha moment for you and Edson when you decided that the time is now to build Estella? Yeah, I think there were several small aha moments throughout our journey, but we experienced a number of hungry missionary founders looking for help and more than money, what they were looking for was help in terms of ideas, benchmarks, mentoring, and this kind of thing. So they actually knew that we did not have money and we could genuinely see that they were looking for help and for our background. So we could understand how valuable it was for the new founders, a new ecosystem that was being created in Brazil. I would say for several times, the aha moments were related to how incredible it is to combine value creation as a way to engage, to build relationship, know the team of founders, and how we could leverage all this effort with the financing rounds. So the combination of the two things and the understanding that it makes a lot of sense to build knowledge on how to help founders scale and how to deploy money was something interesting and challenging for us. And that's what drove us to this journey. It's very interesting that founders came first for the advice before you actually raised money. And talking about the money, when we spoke before, you mentioned that fundraising for the fund one. And I think you mentioned fund two for that matter. 
was a challenging process. Can you guide me through your fundraising journey and share some of the most important lessons you learned as you built your venture capital business? Yeah, sure. It's very, very challenging. At the beginning, we were one of the first funds to come to the scene in Brazil. We were a first-time fund and first-time managers, although we had a previous career in the financial markets and consulting, and we knew a little bit of technology, we could not say that we had the experience in venture capital before. So basically, we would not fit the global investors we're looking at, which would be like a background either on entrepreneurship or in venture capital as a way to reduce risk or at least to make the learning process faster. So those that understood how the asset class and how venture capital worked were pretty much out of scope for us for fundraising. So we would have to convince local Brazilian investors that there was a space for venture capital as an asset class in Brazil. But at that time, back in 2008, 2009, interest rates were very high in Brazil. It was very hard to convince people that on venture capital. At the beginning, the, the understanding of how venture capital works compared to other asset classes, how the ecosystem could thrive despite a high interest rate, and how the investment dynamics were and how returns were distributed, we had to translate the realities and to compare and to show how the other ecosystems and how other countries were developing, uh, how the technology was really changing the entire landscape of those regions. And then we would have to show Brazil could be a fertile place for entrepreneurship and that we had already a small ecosystem that was evolving so the challenge was really to prove that all of those building blocks could be together in Brazil. So, so you had the responsibility to educate the markets before you're able to raise the money. And what were your key learnings out of that ridiculously long process <laughs> where you had to persist, then you had to be resilient, then you had to mitigate the risk of failures in the environment with uh, low tolerance for failures. So what were the things you learned? Well, the venture capital business, there is a big component of uh, trust that is very relevant because the cycles are very long and the access of information are very symmetrical in terms of what is exactly going on. Because, I mean, there is no standard of uh, what kind of information you have to disclose in terms of performance of the companies and the funds. So you have to build trust. The first big lesson I would say that uh, we valued a lot is transparency. So showing very early what we were doing, how we were working, what were our mistakes, uh, what we were building in terms of processes and refining and how we were building the relationship with the founders was very important to show what we knew, what we were learning, how we were maturing over time. And then educating everybody and bringing data, knowledge, and benchmarks was something really important. I mean, as a way to show people that we were on a good track. So all the ideas of what are the ways to measure performance on venture capital and how we would price the assets on the portfolios, all those aspects were pretty important. And also what everybody was impressed is how the amount of failures were big. Nobody was considering that 80 or plus percent of companies would fail and the returns 
would come from the 20% that were successful. So we had some investors that clearly told us, well, listen, I understand you guys are on the right track. You guys are good on what you're doing, but I don't have stomach to hear all those news of our companies uh, failing, write-offs, bankruptcies, and this kind of thing. So those are horrible news for them. And there is this issue of uh, how the human brains are wired to learn from failure and how failure drives much stronger feelings than success, right? So all of this were very challenging for us because at, at a certain point of time, communicating that, that we were writing off a company totally offset another one, like raising a Series A or Series B round and the returns much higher, much bigger. The idea of failure was very impressive for some of those investors. So you have a very straightforward relationships with failure from what I can hear. How did you build these relationships and where is this treating failure as an ability to learn experience coming from? I would say from our eagerness on surviving, eagerness on learning, and eagerness of doing something big. And that's one thing on venture capital, because the cycles are long and because you put a lot of effort and sometimes you will only see results much later. It's harder to learn. It's harder to understand what were your mistakes. We were really driven into measuring our journey and trajectory to understand how to improve and how to avoid mistakes. So this was, uh, this was quite important for us to go back all the time. And even if it was a painful situation to understand what was wrong and what was right. Was Talking very... about processes, how does the investment process at Astella look like today? And how did it change since the launch of Fund One in 2008? That's, that's a very good question. It is today a process that is structured and focused on the capability of each one of us to build conviction in terms of an opportunity. What does it mean to build conviction around the opportunity? It means to interact with this opportunity and the largest aspects of a business as possible and to challenge it and to understand if a concept of the business as something that would be worth uh, betting on and would be worth uh, putting money on. So it's pretty much a personal, I mean, we do it as a team, but everybody has its own process of uh, building our own conviction because everybody has a different background and a different way to learn and to experience different things. The process of building conviction is individual. We learn that at the end of a process, each one of us will have a bias towards one aspect or another that how could probably uh, make the final decision different uh, in terms of a yes or no on an investment. And this was a challenge of how we could help each other to arrive at the conviction and what would we do if we don't have consensus. What do you do when you don't have consensus? That's something that we've been uh, evolving. I mean, first of all, at the beginning, we would only invest if we had consensus. And then we, we started to learn that because we had different views and because we could focus on different aspects of the business, consensus were not always the best thing. It is much easier to say no to a business than to say yes, because it, considering a startup, we have a lot more of unknowns than 
known aspects, which means that there are a lot of hypotheses to be tested. And some of us could have the impression that hypotheses would be easily tested and easily overcome an interesting business. And some of them would say, no, that this risk is too big and I don't want to bet on, on it. So for some of us would be more risk takers on one aspect, other one of us would be more risk takers on other aspects. And the most important thing is the way we would weight the criteria or on a specific business were different. At a certain point in time in our history, it started to bother us some of the opportunities that we lost because we didn't have consensus. We ended up understanding that we had maturity and uh, experience to allow the differences of each one of us to flourish. And if someone built the conviction and were willing to bet on a deal, were the most constructive and, and transparent as possible, we started basically with a checklist of our aspects, like of the founders, product, the processes, in terms of sales, customer success, how the customers were interacting with the solution. Those are still the main blocks that we look at. But how we use it and how we deepen into the details improve it a lot. This was basically this process of looking back on what we did right and what we did wrong. At a certain point in time, looking at the universe of companies that we invested was not enough. We had to look at the universe of companies that we did not invest. And this was really important. How come we did not do that? For me, the idea of losing something that become big is much horrible than investing in, in a company that did not succeed. So we started to look at those companies that we did not invest and register why we did not invest, what kind of reasons we had at that time. We started to learn a lot as well. So it's our huge obsession of taking notes and going back and understanding what went wrong, what made us improve our processes and how we deal with biases. So this is sometimes painful <laughs> moment. I feel your pain. I missed one deal that turned mm -hmm. to become a tech unicorn last year. I had an opportunity to invest in it three times, <laughs> but I was not a decision maker. Maybe that's why I ended up founding my own fund, but I had a very strong conviction around the founder personality and ability to build teams and scale businesses. So I do feel your pain. I have a following question. So when you think about the percentage of decisions driven by individual ownership versus decisions driven by consensus in the firm right now, what does it look like? For pre-seed and seed rounds, we don't need consensus. If the round is a little bigger or if the exposure is a little higher, then we would need to convince another partner. So with two supporters, we do the deal. But then whenever we would do a follow-on or a bigger round or a round in a company that is not on, exactly on the right traction or the maturity for the amount of money that the founders are raising, then we would need to convince more people because then we would need to really understand if the positive aspects of the deals could basically overcome a higher valuation. And this is how we started to understand how the process of building conviction and helping the others to build conviction was totally different from just uh, giving a vote, uh, 
Because at the end of the day, I mean, it's not the decision per se, but it's the process. It's the decision-making process that is important. How transparent you were, how you helped the others to look at that opportunity from other sides, how you enhance that opportunity. So talking about the decisions and evaluating opportunity, the Latin America is blowing up in terms of venture capital dollars invested. And obviously the investment pace is also increasing. So I'm wondering, what is your strategy to adapt to the continuously increasing speed and pace of venture capital deals in the region? We continue to have this view that to engage and to interact before writing the check is very important. And we continue to put a big effort on having access to the opportunities before the team needs the money, before the team is raising around. We continue to see this as a way to be less exposed to hype or to momentum and to have the ability to build the relationship with that team and with that founder before. Because it's very important also to the team of founders to understand if you are the best partner that they need at that time, especially on a moment of uh, high liquidity that we have. If I were a founder at this point of very high liquidity, and I have the conviction that I'm building something unique and something valuable, I would not search for the deepest pocket at the early stage. I would definitely look for knowledge and resources that could make me more efficient, more scalable, and grow faster. Because at the end of the day, the deeper pocket will come whenever I would need more resources. I want to be that investor that can help founders at the early stage. Obviously, I want to have the deeper pockets as well. But for what I want to do, for the passion that I have to help founders to go from the product market fit until growth, I don't necessarily need to have the bigger pockets. I want founders to continue to come to us, to engage, to learn, to be challenged. So we are great on the market. And I think it's true both about the United States and Latin America, where majority of early stage VCs say that they are value-add investors. And this is something we touched upon with the few speakers of the prior episodes. Truth is that 80% of players deliver negative value to their invested companies. And so my question is, how do you think about value adds as well as what's the signature value add of Astella? And I think especially it's relevant now as Latin America is becoming severely competitive and probably the natural selection will favor the funds that actually drive value to their portfolio companies. Yeah, that's a very good question because everybody calls themselves value creators. So how would we prove that we actually add value? We started to implement some experiences. For instance, we ask our founders to evaluate the interactions that we have and to compare. So this was important to hear founders describing how we help them on their journey. And then the other thing was to communicate how we would add value. The two main differentiators that we have is that we are value investors. And it's tricky because in, in venture capital, you don't value the business, you price the business. So how can you be a value investor on a scenario where at the beginning you can't value the tech industry is very transparent and, and it is global. So the amount of data 
related to business models in other globe, growth, traction, margins, how strategies would translate into numbers is huge. So what you have to understand is how to extract value from this entire transparency and what to do with it. So what we do is we analyze the performance and the behavior of companies in same spaces, segments or sectors or business models. Let's say it's a SaaS business or it is a marketplace or it is an e-commerce, it is a vertical or the horizontal solution. And we compare the performance and the behavior of a benchmarks and companies in general in the same space and understand what are the main factors for success, how efficient they were with capital and human capacity. And we bring this perspective not only to evaluate the businesses that we invest, not only to understand if the structure and processes that that company is building is enough to support the growth that it is projecting, but also to understand and to challenge founders and to help to improve where they need to focus. In your experience, when you yeah. think about the founders and when you think about benchmarking them, what are some of the key areas where they tend to need more help and where you tend to help them the most, which is basically driving this positive survey data for you as a fund? Yeah, we ended up specializing on go-to-market strategy because our sweet spot is seed round where founders are very close to that product market fit, but they need to come up with a channel fit. They need to understand what is the best way to scale, to grow faster and to be efficient. And this is when we aggregate most value. We love to dig into the go-to-market strategy of a company and help them understand what are the aspects that they should focus to be more efficient. What are the most important elements to build and to put effort on? We ended up building this expertise on go-to-market strategies and a huge amount of data that we can bring to founders so that they can understand what their goals should be. Talking about data, founders, and momentum, because you're super early in Latam VC game, I have to ask you this. How would you describe the evolution of Brazilian venture capital industry and startup ecosystem since 2008, as well as what's the biggest driver for startup activity? We saw a lot of first-time founders coming to us, pivoting their own lives and lifestyles, willing to do something else and something bigger, and had no examples, no benchmarks. They would come to us as consultants for help, either solo founders or teams that were trying to do something with a very low amount of knowledge and experience on creating a business per se. Now we have second-time founders, third-time founders, serious entrepreneurs coming back to the scene. So I would say that is the combination of good examples or successful heroes that talk about their journey, how they thrived, what were their pain points, their trajectory, the challenges, how they overcome, who helped it, and this kind of thing. So it's, it's really the hero's journey, right? And this virtual cycles of good examples of successful founders plus liquidity changed the entire landscape. So I think that we are still on the very beginning of the construction of this ecosystem. We still don't see the tech 
ecosystem moving the needles of macroeconomics in Brazil, but I am pretty confident that it will. And the beautiful aspect of this is how the example of a totally different style of doing business is possible in our region. Because so far, the industrial revolutions were too much related to government incentives or public policies. And our industry is, is totally contrarian and, and we don't need public policies to help startups thrive. And this is the beauty because you have a history of corruption in Latin America that can be totally overcome if we continue to develop this ecosystem. So this has a tremendous potential impact in our region. I love your bullet about a hero's journey. One of my prior speakers said that the Brazilian ecosystem started with entrepreneurship by necessity, and now it gradually moves to the entrepreneurship by opportunity. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I do. Because at the beginning, it was so tough to create a company that entrepreneurs were the ones that had nothing else to lose that they would start a business because they needed to, because they had no other way to make a living. And this was true indeed, several years ago. And now we see people coming out of school, out of universities, instead of willing to go to a big bank, they are willing to build their own companies. And so I agree. You mentioned the government, the economics, and I have a relevant question for you, because as a venture capitalist, you've been through several economic crises in Brazil and Latin America. How did that impact your mindset? Our mindset uh, driven towards efficiency is a hallmark of, uh, first of all, how we survive it a scarce market in terms of liquidity, because at the beginning, we had very little amount of money to deploy. So we had to learn how to help founders to survive with less money. So efficient was very important, capital efficiency mainly. And at the end of the day, this is still something very valuable. Although we are on a liquid market, there is one thing that is scarce for founders, which is their cap table, their stake of the business. Because they start with 100%, but no money, and they need to grow fast. And competition now is much bigger, showing an efficient business and a scalable business. They can not only do more with less, but also increase their valuation. Because the more they grow, the more efficient they are, the higher the valuation that they get from their rounds. So it continues to be very important. Very up to date. <laughs> so what are typical recommendations that you give to your founders when they face the opportunity to raise preemptive round from growth investor? That's a tough question. I would say that preemptive rounds work very well because of fear of missing out. Because founders fear that they will not get the same amount of money or the same valuation if they wait. And this was particularly true last year because everybody was feeling that we were arriving at a level of valuations that were extremely high globally. How much would you pay for a company that is growing? It was the, the big question mark in investors' mind and in founders' mind. The huge amount of preemptive rounds that we saw last year was mainly because of the feeling that this was not going to be the reality going forward. With this feeling, it's tough to give arguments not to take the money because you want to grow, 
you are on a moment where valuations are high. There is abundance of liquidity in the market. So it's hard to convince founders not to take. What are the risks? The risks are, first of all, if you're raising a lot of money, you should do more, right? You should build more. If resource is not uh, scarce, sometimes you might not be that mindful with it. It's part of our human beings. You end up being more permissive. You end up being more flexible with experiments and new ideas. So that's one risk. And the other risk is that whenever you need money, you're not going to get a higher valuation or the same valuation. You end up being on a tougher situation where you will have to have a higher dilution plus a tough conversation with your current investors because a down round is tough to deal with. And it also the indications of a down round, you know, actually people still think that down rounds are big signs of failure or that you are out of track. I think a lot of entrepreneurs still don't really see a down round because of the optimistic approach towards growth. And because like you mentioned, growth at all costs mentality. They don't really think about down rounds as a possible scenario. And I think also because the market is fairly young, entrepreneurs are also not very educated in terms of what down round actually is. Would you agree with that? Totally. It's a part of people's mindset to look backwards and see how life was easier. But entrepreneurs are actually the opposite. They tend to understand that they will always improve, that it will always become better. So talking about down rounds... It's an unpleasant conversation, I would say, because you also don't want to be (laughs) giving this kind of message. If you see a market where one round is bigger than the other, that growth is evaluated with a larger and larger uh, multiples. And this is the case for private markets, public markets. How can you tell the founder that this is going to end? And when is it going to end? One of my professors in Stanford always said, Olga, gravity always comes back. It's just like, wait for it. I want to touch on the board before we move to the rapid fire. You're a board member of five tech companies so far. Tell me, what's the right time in the startup life cycle to establish a board? And what's the actual value of a board for early stage startup? I would say the sooner the better. But there is one aspect to have in mind. There are specific skills and a specific type of board members that you need to bring in each stage of your company. So if you bring someone that is too concerned of corporate governance, you will end up building processes that will take you out of the main goal that is product market fit, which is actually a process pretty much related to non-scalable activities or to do things that don't scale in the terms of talking to customers yourself as a founder, understanding how they use the product and having insight of how to improve the experience, how to improve the way you communicate the solution to your clients. This is the kind of uh, mind that you have to bring on the beginning. To bring someone that is concerned about uh, control, it's not going to work at the beginning. This will end up being harmful for founders. And then as you grow and as you mature and as you arrive at the specific milestones, you have to bring people that will challenge you and will help you on your next challenges and milestones. And then, I mean, if you arrive at product market fit, you need to scale. And someone that can help you to build all of this with efficiency is important. And then building teams, 
and structuring your business from Series A onwards, bringing more senior people to scale founders. Those are the other aspects that you will need on the growth stage, even if it's not an official board. If it's a group of people that can help you and can challenge you, since the beginning is important. I'm totally with you on the stage specifics of being an advisor, board member, and mentor for the startups. And I do agree that processes and extremely structured environments sometimes hurt. And it's interesting that you mentioned low skill strategy to launch. It's like it's some of my favorites from Paul Graham and Y Combinator. I actually yeah. learned that a lot. And I think it's super powerful for startups. And finally, I'd love to move to a rapid fire section. I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate your immediate responses. Let's dive right in. First question would be, what's the best way to encourage continuous innovations in Latin America? There is nothing more exponential than good examples. The ability to promote the hero's journey and good examples are exponential. And this will continue to drive innovation and to bring our resources to the ecosystem and to founders. Absolutely love it. I'll borrow this quote. I'm going to use it. Second question. What's the thing you're most proud of? Oh, man, that's a tough question to answer because I, I don't want to be cocky. But to move from a career on the financial markets to an ecosystem that was not there yet or that was nascent and that to overcome all the obstacles that I faced, but ended up arriving at the conclusion that those obstacles were not the market, not the competitors, not the preneurs, not the founders, but were on me. It was the, the ability to bring self-awareness and to learn from our own experience. This is something that makes me proud of. And again, the examples of this, because I don't want my kids to look at me now and see how I am and don't see all the effort and all the burdens and all the stones that I had to carry until I arrived here. I wanted them to understand that I had a tough moment so that they can face their own tough moments and be successful and thrive. I'm proud of my journey on this sense that is something that can inspire people. Thank say. you so much for such a genuine answer. Absolutely love it. The next question is, venture capital industry has very high rate of failure, as we discussed before. How do you retain mental plasticity and give it another shot? That is tough. It all depends on how the experience was, what the failure experience was. Because there is one thing that is important. An interpreter that fails, it doesn't mean that he is a failure. On the contrary, she learned a lot until she arrived at that place. The thing that matters is to understand how the, the person learned with the experience and not what exactly it did. So it is a mindset to build. And I have several cases and several examples that I would definitely do it again because we built a powerful relationship. At the end of the day, this is what matters. <laughs> that flows very nicely to my next question. What's the distinction between good and exceptional founder? I would say that an exceptional founder has the ability to improve self-awareness throughout the journey. Right? Because sometimes it is very easy to blame others' market and not considering its own impact or its own responsibilities in, in the context. It is also when everything goes right, it is very easy to be cocky and to say, I'm a very successful person. I'm the guy and not looking at uh, the aspects that could be improved. And so I think self-awareness and, and how to learn with the experiences are very important. 
What will be one piece of advice you'd give me as a female leader or any other female leaders out there willing to build business with or in Latin America? I would say build a group of diverse mentors that could be honestly challenging you throughout your journey. Laura, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been such a pleasure and inspiration. And hearing your story is really encouraging. Thank you for the opportunity. Not only that, but for bringing very interesting and challenging questions that made me think about a lot of different aspects of what we do and what I did in the past. It was a very pleasant conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the J-Curves Latin American Power Women in Tech Series. It's been an ultimate pleasure to have Laura as my guest. To learn more about Astella, go to www.astellainvest.com. And to hear more from us, follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram at Olga Maslikova with KH. The J-Curve is also available on Apple and Spotify to download, rate, and subscribe. Thank you for being with me today.